0: And welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in October 2022. This episode is about a really interesting topic in philosophy and religion, namely religious language. So we'll be thinking about what religious language is, and how it can be said to function, and what various philosophers have said about religious and spiritual language. We'll also see what else we get on to. Joining me in this episode we have Sally Latham who's a philosophy teacher at Birmingham Metropolitan College.
1: Hi Simon.
0: Uh, And we've got Sophie Williams who teaches philosophy, religion and ethics at Barton Court Grammar School in Canterbury. Hi Sophie.
2: Hi Simon, lovely to be here.
0: And we've got Ben Jones from King Edward Sixth College in Stowridge. Hi
3: Ben. Hello there, I haven't moved since we last recorded.
0: (laughs) Uh, Great to have the three of you with us. OK, so we're going to talk about religious language today. Um, this topic appears in a few specifications. It's in the AQA A-level philosophy spec and the IB and the OCR and Edexcel RS specifications. It isn't mentioned explicitly in Scottish Highers, but it might be worth students being aware of it as it raises some interesting issues within philosophy of language generally. What's interesting is the three main A-level specs... Uh, AQA, OCR, edXL all approach it slightly differently and mention different authors. So in this episode, what we're going to do is focus on the AQA uh, version, as it were, of religious language and all the discussions there. But uh, all being well, there will be a podcast on religious language for the other specifications somewhere else in Podland for you to listen to. Uh, but if you're studying religious language at all, it's probably worth listening to both. Because there's things that uh, we're going to be saying in this episode that are relevant for the other specifications and vice versa. And I'll try and make some of the links as well. Okay, so let's start with one way of approaching these issues by thinking about what types of things we're talking about. So, what are the concrete, specific things we have in mind when we're saying this language is religious language? Anyone want to kick things off just to say the kind of types of, of language we've got in mind?
2: Shall I start us off? That'd be great. Yep. Um, So, well... As um, someone who's obviously teaching the AQA specification currently, the key thing that I always find with the religious language component, and when we're sort of thinking about this, um, of what the exam board is sort of expecting of you, but also what the philosophers themselves have said about this, we're really starting to analyse language in a way that we perhaps haven't done previously in the course. So it's really starting to think not just um, about religious claims such as does God exist? It's actually breaking down the language itself of when a religious believer says God exists or God is love, God can hear my prayers. What does this saying actually mean? Does it have any value to it? Is it that the religious believer is saying it as a truth claim or is it that they're expressing something emotional, something that's deeply held within them? And this is sort of different to our everyday type of language, the religious language that we're looking at. Perhaps this is I guess, part of the argument here is that when someone is making a religious claim, it feels like it's got it's saying something deeper than just making a claim like I can hear when someone's speaking to me or I exist. Um, there's almost something deep rooted within religious language that's very different to our everyday language. That's
3: great. Thanks. Anything else you want to add to that? Um, I would think that some of the, the way in which you can look at religious language as well is kind of looking at it from the perspective of of two different points, I think. There's almost like the, let's not call it the atheistic point of view, but a a sort of a philosophical secular kind of point of view, which is about language and about whether or not propositions about God can be meaningful and all that sort of 20th century philosophy of language stuff. And then I think there's a a huge thing, which I'm not necessarily a big expert in at all, but going way, 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 way back, which is almost like this, this exploration from a more... Theological philosophical point of view, which is almost like this idea of how do we use simple human finite language to capture the essence of the divine? How do you fit the divine into words? And they're two interconnected ideas. But if you kind of look at the history of philosophy of language, you can see that it kind of morphs from this, you know, people like Aquinas or whoever trying to figure out how do we talk about the divine through to something more modern which is well how do we talk about anything and then trying to think about religion as kind of like a, a secondary thing afterwards almost yeah
0: and perhaps at the end we might come back to that particular idea Ben and see whether this is a good treatment of, of religious language as well Sally do you want to add something
1: no I think I, I think I agree with that I mean there's one one of the things we're considering is when a religious believer says God you know God is love and you um, you know, like like Sophie said, God hears my prayers, it's what is the language doing? Okay. So what when that comes out of their mouths, is that actually what what's the function of that language? Is it referring to anything in the world? I know we're going to come onto that in cognitivism and non-cognitivism in a moment, um, or is it doing something completely different? And then like like Ben said, the other idea is well, if you do believe in God and you want to talk about him, how best to do that? If you can do it. So you know you're trying to describe something that you know whether you believe in God or not if there is a God, it's going to be beyond anything we've experienced. So it's like me saying to you, "Okay, well, paint me a masterpiece," and I'm giving you these Crayola crayons to, to do it with, because you just what we don't have the tools. So I'm using the same language to talk about the divine as I am to talk about what I'm having for tea, and that is going to be problematic. So if we're going to talk about God, we need to figure out a way to to do that. I
0: think, yeah, yeah. good. And in fact, just some thoughts from me. So as well as, I mean, I suppose this will be mo- most things we, we we think about. So God is love the table is brown, right? Those are kind of two kind of um, claims that we can contrast. And similarly, just just think about other things about you know what we're going to have for our tea. So it might be, mom, can I have fish fingers? And God, hear my prayer, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's all sorts of, perhaps because they want fish fingers, right? So, so there's all, all those sort of things going on about, there's descriptive sentences about, claims about what God is like and what the table is like. And then there's, you know, because Sophie mentioned um, prayers, so this kind of petitionary prayer and all sorts of ways in which, you know, language is used in general in everyday life. And then the thought is just picking up what you said, Sally, and then bringing God in. Right. That could be a bit problematic. And does it, it, it kind of raises the stakes a bit. And are we really going to be treating God and more generally religious language with a sort of uh, reverence, no pun intended, uh, that that's, that's required? Right, so it's really important to keep those ideas in, in mind then, isn't it? So, Sally, you mentioned these terms already, Cognitivism and Non-Cognitivism, which loom large, uh, certainly on the AQA spec, but actually kind of have reference with the other specifications as well, even though I think they, they, it's not mentioned on OCR, it is mentioned on edXL. So uh, does someone want to explain in basic terms what Cognitivism and Non-Cognitivism are, and then we'll think about religious language?
2: so well the way that I always explain sort of cognitivism and non-cognitivism um I do find this is something that students to begin with can find a little bit tricky to to understand fully when we you know I think talking about religious language in general is quite off the wall um it's not really something that we ever really sit in our day-to-day lives and break down the sentences and the language that we're using it's actually something I think we take for granted a lot of the time um and so then when we're introducing these two terms I think students can find it quite tricky to, to grasp um, um, so cognitivism, I always explain as is the view that religious language and um, a lot of the language that we use are sort of trying to make claims that are either true or false claims. So if we just take the basic one that I mentioned earlier, like God exists, when a religious believer is saying that or uh, when a philosopher is trying to prove that God exists, that they're, they're doing exactly that. They're, they're trying to say that this statement is true and that there is an evidence to, to perhaps support it. Um, non-cognitivists, on the other hand, would say that actually religious language isn't quite doing that. When a religious believer is saying God exists, this isn't necessarily a truth claim that they're trying to make, but it's something deeper, it's far more emotional, the claim that they're making. Um, It's perhaps maybe slightly more abstract in a way than a truth claim, um, as we sort of see it as. Um, So it's not trying to be descriptive, it's not trying to say that it is a true or a false claim, it's something that is far more deep-rooted into the individual making the claim
0: okay great uh sally ben anything else you want to add to that
1: no i I think just to to add to that i think one thing with them with cognitivism is because you can be true or false about the claims if i say god exists i'm making a claim about the way the world is and my claim is trying to reference state of affairs in the world and because of that we it should be something that's open to debate we ought to be able to decide what would constitute the truth or falsity of that Whereas in the non-cognitivism, because the language is doing something different, it's expressing not a belief, but uh, something that is not a belief. Maybe a desire, maybe um, you know, a, a, a commitment to a particular way of life. So when I say God exists in that sense, and I'm using it non-cognitively, then non then it would make it would be a mistake to then say, well, no, he doesn't, because where's the evidence? So if you get a cognitivist and a non-cognitivist talking at cross purposes that's going to be a very difficult conversation <laughs> because if you think about, if you're using the language non-cognitively, if I was to say, for example, the Loch Ness Monster exists and Sophie was to say, no, it doesn't. Even though we have a disagreement, we're both using the language cognitively. We both are making claim about the way the world is and we could understand what would constitute evidence for or against our claim. So I would say, okay, well, if you show me, you, know, you drain the lock and there's nothing there, then I, I'm wrong. Yeah, there's, there's a potential for us, to, we're speaking the same language, even though we disagree about the truth of it. But if I was to say God exists, and then Benjamin was to say, no, he doesn't, we won't even agree on what constitutes truth or falsity because that, it's not like that. So it, whatever ben, Benjamin was to, to show me, I would not give up my claim because it's not based on evidence in that sense. It's, a, it's not doing that job. My language, if I'm using that non-cognitively, the language is doing something completely different. I'm expressing how I'm going to live. It's it's a picture of the way the world is. It's a worldview. So it's like we just I see the world differently, and because of that, you know, you you are not going to have a, a conversation with somebody in the same way as you would if you were both using the language cognitively.
0: Okay, great, uh, Ben. Do you want to come
3: in on that? Yeah, I think that I mean everything that's been said, I agree with thus far. It's I think that there's a there's also a split with the. I think if we kind of think in kind of AQA spec for, for philosophy and things like that, there's a nice couple of points of reference back to other, some other stuff, like, for example, the fact that this has already been discussed to some extent in metaethics. And what, what's interesting here is that it's not just a clear transplant from kind of like, oh, let's just have the metaethical discussion again, but about religion. And it's just a repeat, because actually you'll find that the debate has kind of shifted a little bit. So. For example, with AJA, without kind of too many spoilers and things like that, that when you're looking at AJA, he wants to kind of say, "Ah, there's all this problem with moral language, but at least we can do this with it. But then you find less tolerance for that sort of stuff among those people that want to say that it's meaningless, that they want to kind of say, it's meaningless, let's leave it. Let's just, just forget it. And it's because of the kinds of things that he's trying to talk about. And I suppose where you're going to find more sympathy is with those people who may be Perhaps they're not sympathetic towards AJ Ayers' approach and people like that, but they just don't necessarily think that that's what we're talking about in the first place. Um, And I think that there's maybe an element of linking it with the epistemology stuff to do with correspondence theories of truth, maybe versus coherence theories of truth and about how coherence theories of truth, we're not necessarily talking about this, does it match directly to the world, it gives you scope to do other things, not quite non-cognitively, but kind of moving towards playing with different ideas of how we, how we use sentences that sound like they they're meant to match the world, or maybe they don't. Maybe they do something else, and that's kind of a whole big messy area. I know, but
0: great, yeah. Just to get in there, Ben. Then for just to underline the advert. So elsewhere in Podland, there is an excellent couple of episodes on metaethics that I did with you and. Paul Moore Bridger. And in the second episode, well, I think of it was the second episode because we recorded it second on all the, um, the anti-realism stuff. Then we talk about uh, non cognitivism as, as well as error theory. And you're right, there isn't a kind of direct transplant, even though the kind of theory seems the same on paper, right? But, you know, cognitivists think that, you know, as, as we've explained already, that we're making claims and these claims can be seen as either true or false and we think we're making true claims, we can, we can gather evidence for them, and we can show whether there really is a referent or not, So there really is a thing, a Loch Ness monster, a table, a god, whatever it is. Whereas if you've got a non-cognivist attitude towards a particular uh, language or area of language, such as ethics, you can say, well, you're saying you know, murder is wrong, but what you really mean is boo murder, all of those examples that we had uh, in that episode. And similarly, when I say, you know, I love strawberries, I might be making a kind of uh, sentence that could be verified. Well, perhaps I'm just expressing my love and desire for strawberries. Really, what I'm saying is, mmm, strawberries. And mmm, strawberries isn't something that can be true or false at all. But you're, you're right. So when you get into air, spoilers, we're going to get into it in a minute. And some people who are very much influenced by him, whilst they might say, look, moral language isn't, is, is is not you know it's not meaningless. It's kind of it's doing something, but they've got little truck with religious language. Partly because they just don't like religion. I think it comes down to. So when I say that you know God is love, I, I, if I'm a non cognivist or I'm a non cognivist looking at those sort of statements, really I'm saying mm, God, right? More God. This is kind of or kind of a profound expression of my worldview, and uh, some some people are just going to say yeah, but that's just. It's not true it's not false and it's not really meaningful either okay so that's the difference between cognitivism and non-cognitivism where really you've got the different theories of language that come into an area of language and say this is really what's going on with how this language is functioning we've made a reference back to the moral language stuff already so we've mentioned him already aj air does someone want to talk about air and logical positivism and how he enters the picture
3: don't mean to do aj air i can do aj air Go on then. So AJ Eyre is a logical positivist, which is kind of like the, the philosophical wing of the Vienna circle, if you like, along with all the mathematicians and psychologists and so on, scientists. Um, and really to whittle it down, it's this view that language, if it is to be um, literally meaningful and therefore have some sort of positive content to it, then it must be empirically verifiable it must be checkable using the senses either in a stronger version um, you actually have to be able to check it with the senses kind of right there right then or in the weaker version you at least have to know the conditions under which it would be verifiable now i suppose the the other side of it is that we can get into stuff to do with analytic propositions analytic propositions are also meaningful but they're largely tautological so, the idea being that a statement like all bachelors are unmarried or something like that is true, but largely in quite an uninformative sense. If you already know what a bachelor is, then you don't really need to be told that they're unmarried. It, it's almost like if you strip away the content there, what you're left with is the, like the bare bones algebra of logic that just shows you that this means this. You're not really learning anything new. But if you want to say something significant and substantial about the world, and therefore say something meaningful, something which would change my mind about something if I if I learned it, something which would teach me something new about things and actually tell me the way things are, that it's one state of affairs rather than another, then it has to come down to something which you can check empirically. Otherwise, it is meaningless. Um, you're not doing anything with it. You're not doing anything with that language. And I think the way to kind of view... Here and this probably helps explain us a little bit other, other than any personal prejudices he had about religion. One of the reasons why I suppose we can kind of see that he's got this big kind of attack on religion and doesn't try and explain anything further um, in its usage is because the Vienna Circle, and therefore A.J. Eyre, dislike metaphysics, like full stop. You know, there's the stories, I don't know whether anybody's read David Edmonds' book on... The Vienna Circle, the, the murder of Professor Schlick. It's a, a cracking book, and they talk about how they how the word metaphysics to the Vienna Circle was basically an insult or or a you know an expletive to them that you know you just accuse things of being metaphysics because they just thought that it was speculative nonsense. It was just empty language, and so A.J. Ayer then follows this line of argument when he's talking about religious language that. For him, religious language is just yet another subset of metaphysical language. So let's take something like the claims that we've talked about so far, God exists. Well, what we're talking about there is we're saying that a person, thing, being exists. But what we're also trying to say is that when we look at the features of that being, that that being doesn't have, by its nature, any physical qualities. It's a transcendent being. That means that you're not actually able to verify that proposition. There is no way to actually check that God exists. And it doesn't even pass the weak verification principle, the idea that you at least need to know what the conditions are in order to be able to check it. So, for example, if somebody would say something like, um, you know, that there are 10 billion grains of sand on a particular beach Uh, I'm not going to be able to count them all, but I know what it would take to count them all. I would just have to go through each one, one by one, and count them. So I know what it would be like to verify it. It's not completely out of the range of my understanding. And what Air wants to point out is that it doesn't even really pass that either, because we don't even know what it would be like to verify that there was a non-physical, transcendent being that exists above and beyond reality. And as far as he's concerned, that then kind of does collapse a lot of the other claims that seem to be made. He's, He's kind of very concerned about other things as well. So, for example, if I was talking about things like God loves me or something like God created the world, he says that we can't even reduce those things down to things that we do observe. So if I were to say something along the lines of, well, we know that God designed the world because um, look at the way everything in nature works in a uniform, ordered pattern. Well, he says, well, either what you're saying there is what God designed the world means is the same as the world works in a a unified, ordered pattern, like a kind of uniform pattern, which isn't saying anything about God. It's just using different language to say something that we could say normally, empirically every day. Or you are trying to say something more than that, in which case, I'm not really interested in that you're talking about the uniformity of nature. You're just using that as evidence for the existence of this other thing. And you still haven't given me the conditions that prove that, that other what that other thing is. The word God has actually got to have something a bit more substantial to it, other than the things that we can make immediate reference to. And he does go on for quite a while about various other things as well, which I'll kind of cut short a bit. But that's kind of like the big pushing point, I think, that he wants to get to.
0: Great, thanks Ben, that's really helpful. Sally, Sophie, any comments on that, anything to add?
2: Um, I don't know so much necessarily to add. Um, I think that one of the things that um, always comes up when looking at the verification principle is how, in many ways, it then leads us to bigger questions about our everyday language. If we put religious language to, to a side for one second and just think about a claim that I make, um, so for example, just to say something like, I um, I know my mother loves me, things like that can then actually become meaningless as well because how can I empirically show that to be true perhaps I might be able to use the example of the fact that um, my mum phoned me and she checks in on me and um, I don't know will sometimes do my washing for me as well but at the same time that is still somewhat subjective evidence because other people would say actually no that's not a sign of love um, that's you know something else entirely um, so I think actually I always think when I start hearing about um as verification principle part of me really thinks yes I can completely get on board with this. But then I start to think, aside from religious language, about my everyday claims that I think that I know to be true. And then I think, well, actually using this principle in and of itself, I can't really verify that I even know something as basic as my mother loving me. So I, I find it such a tricky concept. In many ways, I'm very much drawn to it, and I can see the logic to it. Um, and then in other ways, I think actually, is this too restrictive? Have we gone too far? Does anything have meaning? Um, which sort of leads us down a, a very sort of um, sad path, I guess, in a way.
0: <laughs> yeah, nice, nice example though, Sophie. Sally, did you want to come
2: in on
1: this? No, I, I agree, and I think that um, the verification principle fell out of favour for a number of reasons I mean, everyone got incredibly excited about it at the Vienna Circle and I always think of AJR as kind of the embodiment of Hume anyway and Hume had already done this he'd already done it with his um, Hume's fork and he said you know go into a library and pick up any book and ask yourself is this something that contains contains experimental reasoning where we can go out and we can experience it okay if the answer is no ask yourself is it something where it contains a lot of mathematical analytical reasoning and if the answer is no, he said he said burn it, <laughs> commit it to the flames so it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. And that's that, you know, this idea of burning. And that was the kind of this I I think the influence of this kind of anti metaphysical movement, which obviously, you know, again, and even early Wittgenstein influenced that, I think. But and, you know, and this, it didn't just sweep away a lot of our ethical language, a lot of our religious language. It swept away a lot of our language about aesthetics. <laughs> and you know, it had a massive, massive impact, and people got incredibly excited about it, as we tend to do. Um, and then this idea of positivism was popping up everywhere. You know, you, it was in sociology. It was in psychology. It's like, OK, if you can't see it and experiment on it, it's not worth anything, and you won't get any funding for it. <laughs> um, and that, that kind of had its day. Um, and then... For many reasons, it it, it sort of died a bit of a death, partly because science changed its mind. And we moved from this idea of, um, you know, under the influence of of people like Popper, we moved from verification to falsification, which I know we're going to come on to soon. And the idea of being able to verify things fell out of favour. And there's also this really satisfying criticism, which I know students tend to love, is that AJR puts forward this verification principle, that if something, a statement is not meaningful, sorry, a statement is not meaningful, if it's not either analytic or Empirically verifiable, um, and then you say, Okay, what you've just said, your verification principle is it analytic or empirically verifiable? And the answer is no, so why should we be basing anything on it? <laughs> and that's massively satisfying, I think, <laughs> that the verification principle fails the verification principle,
0: hoisted by his own petard. Yeah, <laughs> one last point, and then we'll then we'll pause and then go on to some other topics. So I'm just thinking you just mentioned your students there, Sally. So for the three of you. Um, in the kind of standard story so far, what what's the impression by your students? Are they getting a bit confused. They understand air. Are they with air. Are they kind of thinking about religious language in a different way? What, what what's going on with your students?
1: My students find meta ethics and religious language is very difficult. I'm going to be honest; they find that quite diff- yeah, and it's my favourite bit, and nobody ever agrees with me. <laughs> um, but they do find that that very difficult. Um, but they they enjoy not accepting the verification principle I think.
0: (laughs) Because they're fed up of it.
1: Yeah I think so they've done it in meta-ethics they just want it gone (laughs) then.
2: Yeah I I find with my students that um, when we sort of first look at the verification principle um, I think a lot of students do sort of find themselves initially in agreement and then as we just start to slowly unpick it as we have done here right now, um, I think people realise actually this isn't quite as straightforward as um, perhaps makes it sound. but I find that actually um, students that I've sort of done this with, they actually, I find that such a good hook into it, actually, um, because then it really does open up the other sort of approaches towards religious language. So um, I find it to be the, a nice sort of starting hook for students to, to sort of start to grapple with this new unit, because I, I think it is it is tricky for students to, to sort of... Um, to understand i think it is something that's quite as i said earlier we do really take language for granted a lot of the time we don't really even think about our sentence structures and things like that um and so i think it's just something that the students haven't necessarily even considered before so it's it's a nice sort of starting point that we can sort of build upon um with the verification principle
0: Uh, ben anything from you what about your students
3: yeah I think they sort of suffer the same and enjoy it the same you know it's the they do suffer that pain of all of a sudden having to shift their brain into thinking about philosophy of language which is something that they didn't expect to do when they walked through the door on the on the first day they'd never even heard of it and all of a sudden you're kind of hitting them with this stuff that they hadn't expected. I think that again it's absolutely right they do reject the verification principle they see the massive flaws in it AJS all the massive flaws in it in the end and You know, everybody sacked it off. But I think that the thing that they do carry forwards, I think, is the the positive side of it, is the the bit that it does get right to some extent is that constant pestering of, but what do you mean? And if somebody can't cash it out, then why are we listening? That kind of idea of somebody's making a statement about the world. And I think, especially in philosophy of religion, way more than... The meta ethics stuff is that there's if you do kind of a quick survey of the class, I never pick on anybody when I do this. But if you did do a quick survey of the class, there'd probably be one, two, maybe a handful of people who've got this sort of generic spiritualism where it's a kind of like a, I don't know, kind of there's something, but I kind of don't know what it is. And I kind of think that it's there and things are based on it. And you just go, could you explain to me on any level what that means? Like, can you give me some features of it? Or like, it's an energy. Okay, what sort of energy? What kind of transfer does it take? How do you measure this energy? Is there more or less of it in certain places? And actually what you find is just this sort of what AJA is good at doing is identifying the sort of woo-woo sort of it kind of, dare I say, Deepak Chopra style, kind of not actually rooted in anything, grabbing little bits of here and there to make something that sounds coherent, but actually doesn't. What he does is way overshoot the mark with what actually makes language meaningful, though. He, he takes that very good observation and then just pushes it to the end and actually ends it. It just backfires ultimately.
0: Great. Right. Okay, good thoughts from all three of you. Let's Let's pause things there. And then we'll see you in the next part when we take things on a notch and continue the story. Before we start this part, uh, just a quick advert, as I often do, um, for the Philosophy Gets Schooled podcast series. Um, you can find us on lots of different podcasts hosting sites. Um, If you want to see what episodes we've got and what episodes we will have coming up then go to my personal website, Uh, just search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. At the top there's a few tabs, just click on the tab that says Pod Schools and there there's a timetable uh, with some episodes coming up. Um, If you see an episode that's coming up and you want to write in with a question or comment please do so, we'd love to use them in episodes. Um, if you're listening to an episode uh, that obviously we've already recorded and you've got some questions, please still write in. Um, I'm hoping to do a few Q&A roundtables with some teachers um, that we can um, uh, use your questions in. Okay, so let's move on then. So we've talked about um, uh, AJ Ayer, um but there's a really interesting response to Ayer, um from John Hick. So, Sally, do you want to introduce that for us, please?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, just to put this into context, when AJR talks about verification, there's two ways in which something can be verifiable. So it can be verifiable in practice, which means now, or it can be verifiable in principle, which means there is some potential verification. So I I believe the example that AJR may have used was there are mountains on the dark side of the moon. It works, even if AJ didn't use it. Um, so this idea that, well, at the time, we didn't have the technology to get there, but I can that's how it would be verified. So there's a potential for, for verification. So that's going to become important when um, John Hick gives his reply, because he chose to accept that verification principle. He chose to accept that challenge um, for meaningful language and then show that religious language actually meets it. So he gives this beautiful parable, and just disclaimer, I am paraphrasing, <laughs> um, and it's about, it's called the celestial city, so celestial meaning heavenly, and you've got these two travellers walking along the same path, and as they go across this path, one of them believes that there's it leads to a celestial city, so it leads to the, and there's a king in this celestial city, whereas the other one believes it leads nowhere, it's a path, and when you get to the end, there's nothing there. And as they go through um, through this journey, they experience certain things. They experience certain difficult parts, certain parts that are really nice and easy to cross. And they interpret it completely differently. So one of them will say, well, this is a test from the king. This is a reward from the king. When we get to the um, celestial city, he will reward us for our, our perseverance, etc. And the other person who doesn't believe there's anything at the end of this road just says, well, no, there's a good bit. Enjoy it. There's a bad bit. Endure it. But it's not going anywhere. So... What this represents then is the idea that, that the path is life and one is a believer and one is a, a non-believer. So as the, as the theist goes through life, he or she makes certain claims. You know, this is a, a test from God. This is a punishment from God. This is um, a reward from God. When we get to heaven, you know, he will be there. So when, when they get to the, the end of this path or when we get to the end of life, if there is a celestial city, Okay, so if there is a God and there is a heaven or an afterlife, I should say, then everything that that believer has said is verifiable because they've got to that end of got to that place. So as they're traveling through, what he or she is saying is meaningful because it's verifiable in principle. So when I'm saying this is a test, we will be rewarded. You know, the, the king loves us. Then when I get to the end, then that is verifiable in principle. You know, I can say, oh look, you know, there was there was a heaven, there was a celestial city, which means that even though we cannot verify the religious believers language now, it's meaningful language because it meets the verification principle. So in a cognitivist sense, it's it's this meaningful language. Now, what can't happen is you can't get to the end of life and there'd be nothing and turn around and say, haha, I told you there was no afterlife because you're gone. <laughs> so there is that potential problem when we come on to falsification, there is no potential to falsify this at all. But if you take AJA's challenge for, for language to be meaningful, it has to be verifiable in practice or in principle. Hicks says, "Well, it is; it's verifiable in principle." I accept your challenge. And religious language meets it.
3: I think the, the thing that always kind of catches me about—I don't know what anybody else thinks—I so I open this up because I'm, I'm not an expert on Hicks' wider um, works and things, so I don't know whether I'm missing something. But the bit that always gets me about it is that I, I, I completely understand where it's coming from, it is verifiable in principle. Absolutely. I think that the bit which is always odd about it is that with when we're verifying things in principle, um, it has to, again, the idea of cashing things out, there has to be a way in which I understand what it is to verify something in principle. So I might be able to say, for example, like if it was about mountains around the dark side of the moon, I know what the moon is. I know what the other side of the moon is, and I know what mountains are. Now, if somebody were to say, um, when I get to the end of life, there will be an afterlife, and there will be God, and God is a transcendent being who is infinite and doesn't have a physical body, and yada, 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 then in words, it's verifiable in principle. Because all you're doing is saying, it'd be like me saying, I'll become one with the consciousness, one with the universal consciousness after I die. And then somebody says, well, what will that be like? Uh, you know, I th- don't think what you're saying is meaningful. And I say, well, we'll find out if when we die, we become one with the universal consciousness. I'm right. But that doesn't mean that at the moment, I know beyond just saying the words, what that actually means. Like, what does it actually mean? Am I actually able to picture and think that in the same way that I can picture mountains on the other side of the moon? Am I able to imagine God? Am I able to imagine we're making a huge assumption that the afterlife is very much like this one, uh, even in Christianity, that I am still have a physical body and Jesus is going to turn up and the, the pearly gates really are pearly gates and all that sort of stuff. Um, and a lot of other religions, you know, that would kind of say, well, actually, no, there's, there's not necessarily going to be anything recognisable. So I think that's always been my sticking point with it. I don't know whether or not Hick addresses that, um, but that's always been the, the bit that I struggle with, I think.
2: Yeah, I've, I've had a sort of, I find that this often sort of comes up when we look at Hick um, in lesson time, is that it's almost like opening this big can of worms, um, because now we're suddenly talking about, well, can we make any sort of claim about an afterlife um, if it's not really something that we've ever experienced? Well, I often will sort of bring into the conversation about sort of the religious experience, so people who've had like a, a near-death experience and have perhaps experienced some type of afterlife can we take anything from what they say to perhaps be evidence of an afterlife? Um, But it it does open up this huge sort of can of worms of, you know, then leading us down this sort of new route of, well, if there is an afterlife and people have potentially experienced it here, do do the claims that they're making about what the afterlife are like, do those claims have any meaning to them? So when we say that the um, heaven will be um, a place where maybe we're reunited with loved ones, well, what, what will these loved ones be like? Will they still be like um, how I knew them here on Earth? Will they have a physical body? Will they be a younger version of themselves? Will I even be able to recognise them? So I find with Hick, we're almost left with more questions than actually being able to answer them. So in principle, yes, he is, he does manage to use the verification principle. Um, but as we've already asserted, though, the, the verification principle that Air sort of set up wasn't particularly strong in the first place. So it's it's he sort of Of he has, um, I guess, sort of won the debate between the two of them, but he's left us with more and more questions, so it's perhaps not the strongest debate to be winning, if that makes sense.
3: Okay, I'll I'll, I'll do flu and then I'll, I'll, Um, so flu, I suppose, continuing on from the the AJ air side of things, AJ air is pushing this idea of verification, um, and he does mention in passing a few times that it's not just about verification. There is also this thing, falsification, which is knowing the conditions under which something would be false, and he thinks that they're tied together, even though he's sort of really pushing verification. A few years later, um, many years later, in fact, uh, a couple of decades or so, um, there's a debate that takes place in a journal called University, and uh, a guy called um, Flew, writes a paper about the idea of falsification and its relationship to religious language. And this is then opened up to two other philosophers who read each other's replies. Everybody reads each other's replies. So uh, Hare and Mitchell. And then Flew gives his response at the end. He gets a chance to kind of a a right to reply at the end. Um, And there are these kind of four neat little essays, really short, punchy little essays, really, really nice to read. Um, Yeah, there are some kind of like, technical bits, but few and far between, actually, it's it's quite readable. Um, And what Flew tries to propose is that while maybe we've forgotten about the idea of verification, there's this idea of falsification. So whenever you assert a proposition to be true, so if I were to say something like, the table is brown, that automatically entails the denial of the negation of that so that i also believe that the saying the table is not brown is false and i suppose if you want to put that into a context because people immediately go no i'm just saying that the table is brown i'm not saying anything else well you kind of are because by saying that the table is brown what you're also pointing out is that that excludes certain other things that it's not other colors Um, If I say that there are mountains on the dark side of the moon, then I'm saying that it's not the case that if you went down the to the dark side of the moon, there would be no mountains and so on. So it always entails this idea of um, falsification. And if you don't have a statement which can be falsified, his argument is that because there is that entailment, if you don't have a falsifiable statement, you're not actually making a positive assertion either. You're not actually saying anything. The example that he gives um, is from wisdom and wisdom puts this forward as a kind of like a, a very pro religious um, argument about the nature of faith and 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 how we view the world. Um, but he talks about the um, two explorers kind of stumbling upon um, a clearing within the woods and. Um, and one of them notices that there, this clearing is is there and sees that it's obviously very neat um you know it's a clearing after all and there's lots of life there and it looks very healthy um and says wow you know that this is really well looked after look at you know the 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 gardener that deals with this is you know is incredible thank you ever so much the the gardener for leaving this clearing here for for us um i am also paraphrasing <laughs> <laughs> um the other, the other explorer just goes, "What are you talking about, Gardener? Why on earth would you believe there was a gardener here?" And in fact, wisdom does mention a little bit more of like, the idea that he can see the weeds and he can see, you know, there's animals eating each other and this is, this is, you know, red in tooth and claw and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the point is, he said, he says, "No, clearly a gardener's here." So the other guy says, "All right, we'll set up camp. We'll stay here. We'll see what happens." And uh, no gardener turns up, and he says, "Look, no gardener." He said, "Ah, oh, yeah, well, that's because the garden is invisible." He said, "Okay, well, fine. We'll um, we'll set up uh, trip wires, you know, that will set off alarms and things, and we'll see if anybody turns up. Nothing happens. Oh, yeah, well, he doesn't make a sound, and he's intangible. He doesn't, you know, he, he can't be detected in the in the usual sorts of ways. And the point F- Flu wants to make is, if every time you're given a reason, a a a series of statements which would Discount what you're saying, and you simply kind of build them into the positive account, then it suffers this what he calls death by a thousand qualifications. That it goes through this process where the statement, the invisible gardener exists, becomes completely indistinguishable from the statement that the gardener doesn't exist because you're saying a gardener that is invisible and intangible and blah 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 blah. blah is effectively describing the same world as one without. And therefore, the inability, and he says it's not just the the fact that it turns out that way, it's the inability for these religious statements to actually have anything other than this constant qualification to it, or the religious believer to stop qualifying their statements, means that it ultimately renders things, uh, renders religious language and religious assertions ultimately meaningless? And he sort of throws open this question to to the other two and says, you know, given that I see a child dying of a terrible disease, and I'm told God loves us as a father, what evidence could I present to you that would make you think that you were willing to retract your statement? Not as a test of their faith so much, but as a test of their religious language. What are the Kind of counter conditions that will make this meaningless.
0: Uh, that's great, thanks. Um, so we've done Hicks' reply to air, um, and there's another really interesting uh, reply to air that comes in the middle of the 20th century. Um, discussion is it by Anthony Flew, R.M. Um, Hare, and Basil Mitchell. So, Ben, do you want to introduce that for us, please?
3: A few years later, um, many years later, in fact. Uh, a couple of decades or so, there's a debate that takes place in a journal called University. And uh, a guy called um, Flew writes a paper about the idea of falsification and its relationship to religious language. And this is then opened up to two other philosophers who read each other's replies. Everybody reads each other's replies. So uh, Hare and Mitchell. And then Flew gives his response at the end. He gets a chance to kind of a, a right to reply at the end. And there are these kind of four neat little essays, really short, punchy little essays, really, really nice to read. Yeah, there are some kind of like technical bits, but few and far between, actually. It's it's quite readable. And what Flew tries to propose is that while maybe we've forgotten about the idea of verification, there's this idea of falsification. So whenever you assert a proposition to be true, so if I were to say something like, the table is brown, That automatically entails the denial of the negation of that. So that I also believe that the saying the table is not brown is false. And I suppose if we want to put that into a context, because people immediately go, no, I'm just saying that the table is brown. I'm not saying anything else. Well, you kind of are, because by saying that the table is brown, what you're also pointing out is that that excludes certain other things, that it's not other colors. Um, If I say that there are mountains on the dark side of the moon, then I'm saying that it's not the case that if you went down the round to the dark side of the moon, there would be no mountains and so on. So it always entails this idea of falsification. And if you don't have a statement which can be falsified, his argument is that because there is that entailment, if you don't have a falsifiable statement, you're not actually making a positive assertion either. You're not actually saying anything the example that he gives is from wisdom and wisdom puts this forward as a kind of like a a very pro-religious argument about the nature of faith and 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 how we view the world Um, but he talks about the um, two explorers kind of stumbling upon a clearing within the woods and one of them notices that there this clearing is is there and sees that it's obviously very neat um you know it's a clearing after all and there's lots of life there and it looks very healthy and says wow you know that this is really well looked after look at you know the 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 gardener that deals with this is you know is incredible thank you ever so much the the gardener for leaving this clearing here for for us i am also paraphrasing the other, the other explorer just goes, What are you talking about, gardener? Why on earth would you believe there was a gardener here? And in fact, Wisdom does mention a little bit more kind of the idea that he can see the weeds and he can see, you know, there's animals eating each other and this is, this is you know, redding tooth and claw and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, he, said, he says, No, clearly a gardener's here. So the other guy says, All right, we'll set up camp. We'll stay here. We'll see what happens. And uh, no gardener turns up. And he says, Look, no gardener. And he says, Ah, yeah, well, that's because the gardener's invisible. He said, OK, well, fine, we'll um, we'll set up uh, tripwires, you know, that will set off alarms and things and we'll see if anybody turns up. Nothing happens. Oh, yeah, well, he doesn't make a sound and he's intangible. He doesn't you know, he, he can't be detected in the in the usual sorts of ways. And the point F- F- Flew wants to make is if every time you're given a reason, a, a, a series of statements which would discount what you're saying, and you simply kind of build them into the positive account, then it suffers this, what he calls a death by a thousand qualifications, that it goes through this process where the statement, the invisible gardener exists, becomes completely indistinguishable from the statement that the gardener doesn't exist because you're saying a gardener that is invisible and intangible and blah, 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 blah. blah He's effectively describing the same world as one without and therefore the inability and he says it's not just the um, the fact that it turns out that way. It's the inability for these religious statements to actually have anything other than this constant qualification to it or the religious believer to stop qualifying their statements means that it ultimately renders things, uh, re- renders religious language and religious assertions ultimately meaningless? And he sort of throws open this question to to the other two and says, you know, given that I see a child dying of a terrible disease, and I'm told God loves us as a father, what evidence could I present to you that would make you think that you were willing to retract your statement, not as a test of their faith so much, but as a test of their religious language? What are the kind of counter conditions that will make this meaningless? Uh, that's
0: great. Thanks, Ben. Sally, Sophie, anything you want to add or, or take the story on with the with the readings?
1: Yeah, I would certainly say to all students after listening to this to go away and read the originals of, of these articles. They are beautiful, beautiful um, pieces, really, really nicely written. Um, and the way Flew words this is, is just gorgeous. Um, one of the things he says is that when we make a proposition, he calls it P, P is equivalent to minus minus P. So a positive is equivalent to two negatives. So if I make the proposition, I think Benjamin has already said this, you know, that the sky is blue. I'm also saying the sky is not not blue. I ought to understand what not blue looks like. But when the believer says God loves me, well, what that should be equivalent to is God does not not love me. But there is no entertainment of what God not loving me will look like. And that's why it's it's unfalsifiable. So this this idea of death by a thousand qualifications comes from a Japanese form of kind of, torture and death where rather than killing somebody outright there's a thousand cuts little cuts none of them kill you outright but you slowly sorry to be gruesome you slowly bleed to, to death until there's nothing left so with these statements you know god loves me as, as a father loves a child and it seems like a big bold hypothesis about the way the world is but suffers these qualifications you don't kill it outright but by the time you've qualified it and qualified it and qualified it there is nothing left which is the frustration of the, the traveller saying, what would have to occur for you to give up your claim? And, you know, and yes, in, in sort of the, the last bit where he wraps it up, he uses the example of the of doublethink. So he says, well, sometimes, you know, the, what the believer. is, this is from George Orwell's 1984, where we force ourselves to believe two contradictory beliefs at the same time and entertain them both. He says sometimes the believer is forced into this doublethink in order to maintain their belief in God in the face of the, the uh, this world that contains so much evil. And, you know, that seems to be the position they they end up in.
0: Shall we uh, go on a notch then? Because as well as uh, flu, there are, as Ben mentioned, there are two other people in this uh, little exchange. So uh, does someone want to talk about RM Hare and uh, Basil Mitchell?
2: Um, well, I can start off talking a little bit about basil Mitchell. Um, I must admit though this is perhaps my um, least favorite response in the whole debate. I don't know if um if you feel the same about this, but um, so Basil Mitchell sort of responds to flu, um not really agreeing with what flu has had to say previously, and um does think that actually religious claims and religious language can be falsified and just to sort of add at this point um when it comes to the concept of falsification um i think that again the verification it feels very straightforward you just need to you know, can you prove it to be false? Falsification is almost working backwards in a way, and it's sort of um, as Karl Popper sort of used in his example. If rather than trying to find all of the white swans to be able to ver- to be able to say the claim all swans are white, it's better to actually go out and try and falsify and try and find the swans that are not white. And so while it might be more efficient, um, I think that particularly at this point where we start to introduce this idea of falsification, it it becomes almost um, very sort of complex and complicated. And what Basil Mitchell is doing is he tries to use um, his sort of example of the partisan to try and highlight the fact that actually we can do exactly the same as what Karl Popper is suggesting we do in falsifying and what Flew is sort of saying we can't do. And he's sort of trying to say, that actually, that can be possible. And in this, in this example that he puts forward is he says that... Um, If there is a resistance movement that breaks out um, and you're sort of encouraged to follow this one sort of particular leader, at times you see the leader to be sort of um, on the side of the resistance movement. But there's also times when you are sort of doubting this, that perhaps actually um, he isn't quite who he says he is and maybe he's got, um, maybe he's actually fighting for the other side we would be able to eventually falsify this claim when the resistance sort of comes to an end and we'd sort of finally see who this partisan truly is. Um, I don't know if that's really the best way to have explained it. Perhaps, um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in, in and it a little bit further. I think this is perhaps the, I I don't know, maybe it's the way that I explain it, but I think this is a slightly, I don't know, I, find, I always find this example just tricky, the, the one that Mitchell sort of responds with.
1: I think one of the reasons it's tricky is because the specification does Mitchell straight after flu, whereas it makes a lot more sense, I think, when you've done hair as well. So we could always return to it after we've talked about hair potentially because he picks up on like, well, flu's wrong because of this, hair's wrong because of this, and this is what my view on religious language is.
0: (laughs) Um, Should we jump in and then just do hair then and just think about all three of them together? So who wants to explain what's going on with hair and blicks?
1: I'm happy to have a, have a go at Hare. So what what happened with them, um, both verification and falsification, they're both cognitivist approaches. They're both assuming that religious language is saying something about the way the world is and then ought to therefore meet these criterion of, of, of meaning. Whereas what um, Hare does is he moves to a non-cognitivist perspective and he says it's not what religious language is doing. So Flew and AJR had said that religious language was meaningless because it didn't meet cognitivist standards, whereas Hair is going to say, actually, no, it's meaningful because we're going to reject those criteria of meaning completely. And he uses this example of um, a, a university student who believes all the dons are out to kill him. It took me a while to work out when I was first studying this that dons are what they call university professors at, um, at Oxford. <laughs> so some of my students are like, What do you mean like in the mafia? I was like, No. no. <laughs> so, the, 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 so he believes that all these dons are out to kill him. And this is not based on anything. There's no evidence for it, but he believes it strongly. And when he says, you know, the Dons about to kill me, this affects everything that he experiences. So he, they, he gets taken to see um, the kindliest, loveliest Don has tea with him. He's like, oh, yeah, but it's all part of the cunning plan to kill me. It doesn't matter what you show this man. It's all interpreted in the light of this particular belief. And that belief here calls a blick. So a blick is an unquestioned ungrounded belief about the way the world is. It's not based on evidence. So evidence will not change it. Instead, it affects how you interpret the evidence. And we all have blicks. I mean, Hare alludes to sane and insane blicks, which he never properly, I don't think, elaborates on. But he said, now, when you came and you sat on your chair, you had a blick. <laughs> you didn't question it. But this, the point is that religious language is a, a blick. It's a way of interpreting the world. You're not It's not subject to debate and evidence it's a way of filtering our experience um, but it is meaningful it's meaningful because it affects your life you know you care deeply about it so he, uh, he what he's done here is he's, he's given this kind of what i see as a defense of religious language but i think it's a very bad defense of religious language if you ask any believer do you go we're okay, we calling your religious belief a blick possibly an insane one i don't think they want to <laughs> i don't think they want to accept that particularly but it's his defense His response to flu just reject cognitivism completely.
0: Great, Ben. You look as if you want to come in.
3: No, I was I was just giggling along because I do think it is it is one of those. I mean, and to to kind of follow up on what Sally was saying earlier as well about how beautifully written this is. I think flu's response contains some of his best sort of zinger insults of somebody else's work when he's responding. To hair. So he sort of starts off really nice and kind of saying, oh, this concept of a blick, it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely amazing. We should definitely look into that. It's absolutely amazing. But I think when it comes to religious language, you're barking up the wrong tree completely. And he sort of says that if you're basically saying that that's what a religion, and I think we could just refer it back again. Another, right? I'm such a huckster, like referring back to that other episode that we did on, on um, meta ethics. And I said that we've always got to have this danger of the person that sort of says, this is what you're doing with your language and you don't realize it. That's sort of what he's doing. He's saying, hey, religious believers, I'm a Christian too. You know, I'm not speaking as a Christian here, but this is what we're doing when we use our language. And um, Flew, as very much not a Christian at that point, sort of, you know, had a flirtation with deism at the end there, but um, but as very much not a Christian, sort of goes, I don't think you are. I don't think most people would say that. It's a very unorthodox view of religion you've got there, that these people are not making actual assertions in the way that they think they are, my point is, I don't think they're making meaningful assertions. There's no content to it. I'm under no doubt that they don't, at least sometimes, genuinely think that they're making assertions. They just, they just not. But this idea that they're doing something else is wrong. And he sort of he refers to it as I've actually made a note of these because I did like them. He, he talks about how if we take his view, it's not only totally unorthodox; it is, it is either fraudulent or silly that this is what we're doing with. With our language, if we're using these religious language, he says. So take the example: um, you ought to because it's God God's will. He says, "Well, there I appear to be making a proposition, I like, you know, kind of asserting something that you ought to do X because it is God's will." And he says, "But ultimately, if because it is God's will doesn't really explain anything, then there is no explanation, and all you're doing is asserting you ought, and therefore it makes no. It, it's just a command, an empty command." On the other hand, and he, called, he refers to that as a dialectical dud check, he then says later on that if you take something like my soul is immortal because God loves me as he would love a child sort of thing, he says, well, there you've got the same sort of problem. You've got this idea that you're sort of making this sort of empty statement. This You're using this blick and then backing it up with a blick. And therefore, he says that it's the att- it's like an attempt to pay off your overdraft by paying a check from the same account that you've got the overdraft in, that ultimately you're in debt. There's a kind of like this deficit. And so you decide to pay your deficit off by paying it out of the account with the deficit. You're using an empty gesture to back up an empty gesture. It doesn't mean anything. And so he's happy to kind of go along with this idea of blicks. But he just thinks that if you're going to apply that to religious language, then actually it's not what religious language is doing. And even if it was trying to do that, it wouldn't actually achieve anything. It would, it would almost make religious language just as bad.
0: Great. Uh, really helpful from all three of you. So in a way, just to move us on then, so there's a kind of a different kind of entry in this, in this story across the 20th century. So we've kind of had this frame in terms of cognivism and non-cognivism, and then there's one of the greats, in my view, uh, certainly a 20th century philosophy. Wittgenstein comes along and we get, there's little bits of, of Wittgenstein, particularly his later work that comes in, but there's particularly, let's, let's just say, kind of ardent Wittgensteinian believers who come along and really use his ideas and apply it to, to religious language. So does someone want to say how Wittgenstein and Wittgensteinian ideas kind of enter this picture then?
1: I would be happy to talk about Wittgenstein all the day long. (laughs) The interesting thing about Wittgenstein is he actually changed the course of religious, philosophical language twice. Um, So originally, you know, it's thought that he influenced all this logical positivism. He had this referential theory of language where, you know, if we use a word, it should picture something in the world. And if you can't, that word we cannot speak, that word we should be silent, and this we shouldn't talk about, and that we shouldn't talk about. And then he's like, right, philosophy's done, I'm off. And he went off and he did other things. He became a gardener. And he punched his student and he did all this stuff. Now, the, the story that I heard, and I don't, this is not fact checked, but it's what I was taught, is that he was kind of off doing, not doing philosophy. And he was in Spain and he was at a harvest festival. And he saw all of these rituals and there were corn dolls and people doing things. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. I have no clue. And the reason I have no clue is because I am not part of it. And that led him to reassess what language should be. So Wittgenstein had this idea that we're all part of something called a, a form of life. And within that form of life, there will be culture and there'll be rituals and there'll be language. And we all have these language games. And, you know, there is a, it's a religious language game. But within that, there'll also be the, the game of praying, the game of talking about miracles. There's lots of kind of sub games and sub games. But the important thing about this is that each game has its own rules. And the meaning comes from the fact that it is played. The game is played. Now, this is a non-cognitivist perspective on on all language, religious language in particular. And he says, well, look, it would be, there's two things going on. Firstly, if you march in with your verification principle and your falsification principle and tell a religious believer what they should be doing, it's not your game. You know, that's not, these these things work for science. They don't work for religious language games. It's like the rugby player going and saying to the football player, why aren't you picking up the ball? You're doing it wrong. But it's different rules for, for different games. So, In science, it might make sense. If I was to say in science, okay, well, chemical A and chemical B, you put them together and they explode. And you were to say, okay, could you show me? They'd be like, no, no, I can't show you. No evidence for that. You'd be like, well, you're not using the language correctly then. But if you go into a religious language game and and the believer says, well, no, God loves me as a father loves a child. And they say, well, can you just give me some evidence of that, please? Well, no, that's a different game with different rules. Those rules do not apply. Now, there are there are that you can use religious language in an incorrect way it's not that you can say anything you like and it's all meaningful but the the meaning comes from within the game and from the players of that game now for wittgenstein he says that the way this particular game is played is when i say god loves me it's not a theory the word god is not referring to a thing it's a way of life he said what a strange If if i'm talking about the last judgment how very strange if that was supposed to be a theory about what's going to happen at the end of the world no, it's a picture. It's a picture that religious believers have in front of their mind when they go and they and they live their lives. It, it guides our action. So he says the religious man suspends himself from heaven. So if you imagine hanging upside down, the world looks different. That's what religious language is doing. It's a worldview. It's not a theory about things. And this mistake in, in conflating these two these two worlds and these two games, that's where A.J. Air flew. All the other cognitivists made their mistake.
0: Well, Sally uh sophie ben any comments from you then about fiction
2: Yeah, I think um, with with Wittgenstein, as we sort of highlighted earlier, is is the fact that he does sort of have this change in his um, perspective on religious language. And um, I find that when we get to the point of looking at Wittgenstein, this is the part that I find the students suddenly, they love religious language all of a sudden, and and things start to almost fall into place. Um, And the the questions that perhaps weren't quite making sense suddenly are. Um, And, you know, I think just sort of leading on from where we're looking at Blix just a moment ago, prior to sort of thinking about blicks in relation to anything else it does sort of make it sound like blicks as we sort of said are perhaps slightly insulting but I think actually it, it marries quite nicely with what Wittgenstein was saying about the fact that actually you know that we need to move away from this idea that, that language is something that we can scientifically dissect and we can find sort of evidence for these claims and start to sort of see it as this is an approach to the world, um, which, again, is, uh, is almost taking another step back and thinking about that type of language, of the fact of seeing it this is an approach um, and not so much a, a, a claim in the same way as we've sort of been talking about them. Um, and I think as as well with Wittgenstein um, when we sort of start to think about the language that we're using um, we really do start to see that actually language is dependent on the context in which we're using it Um, you know I always use the example of wicked um, when I'm teaching on this you know some students might say I'm wicked because I give them a a detention, and I'm the worst teacher in the world Um, and other teachers and other students might say I'm wicked because you know I have great lessons and (laughs) things like that so you know the context is so dependent on on your perspective, on, on how to use that language. And I think that then really starts to resonate with students, particularly students who perhaps are coming from a religious background themselves. I think they find a lot of um, appreciation with what I is saying and they can sort of from their perspective say, yes, this summarizes it quite well of what I'm doing when I'm making my own religious claims. So, um, yeah, it's always great when we get to this part of talking about religious language, I think.
3: Yeah, Wittgenstein is just one of those figures where he does turn things. He just turns things upside down, and and you may end up not agreeing with Wittgenstein, but for that brief moment, you're kind of flipped upside down a bit. He's one of those figures who sort of has a has an impact, even if you end up sort of rejecting him. I think, Um, and those those people who sort of like uh, are on the fringes of philosophy Twitter, looking in, will realise there's a huge divide between those who are like vitriolic against him and those who are kind of like highly in praise of him i think the bit that always what's interesting for me is because we can now start looking at this in another way as we said earlier about like the vienna circle it was filled with people who were psychologists and sociologists and economists and all sorts of people scientists and so this idea of verification was kind of like pulsing through all of those ideas and wittgenstein was their their idol and then he disappears and then kind of comes back and he's changed his mind. And, and they're kind of like, oh, hang on. It's all, it's all going wrong. He's come back and he's changed his mind. Um, when you look at it that way, what what I find quite interesting is it does actually bring you back to that Vienna circle sort of thing of all these minds looking at it from different perspectives. Because the bit that I've always found, it catches me off guard a little bit about it, talking about Wittgenstein. When you get to this language game, start thinking, hey, we're all just playing different language games. And you shouldn't go into that language game and sort of tell people how to run it because it's a different game. You might be using the same pieces, but the rules are different, you know, kind of like in a game of cards, you know, the way you're using your aces is not the way that these people are using their aces. You know, these people are playing snap, you're playing poker, you know, you can't do this. There then becomes a really interesting sociological and psychological and even ethical element to it. Because on the one hand, you can see that it's, there's this idea of, look, your, your verificationist way of looking at things shouldn't be barging into their way of life and sort of saying, oh, you're doing it wrong, because you don't inhabit their way of life. And so linguistically, you're just getting the wrong end of the stick. And that's, that's fine. And I think we can kind of see the point in that. But then there's also the interesting kind of sociological ethical side of it, which is when, for example somebody a rare group of people are standing on a street corner and bellowing at you saying i see your way of life you're going to hell you're going to burn you better change then how am i supposed to take that am i supposed to take how am i supposed to then respond to them and say well i would respond i do apologize but i'm playing a verificationist discourse here and your vocabulary is like this non-cognitivist one so I do apologize but I I can't really engage in this conversation or should I try and change their mind you know so when they say you're going to go to hell because x then how do I question that I mean they seem to be making a claim and when they talk about hell are they talking about hell literally some people would say no we're still talking about hell literally Um, we are still talking about heaven literally some people won't I think that's a nice bit about Mitchell as well, where he he actually gives that bit at the end of his paper where he says, look, when all these doubts are thrown at you and you're given the evidence why you might not believe, you have three choices. You either take statements like God loves me to be just a hypothesis, and I I can drop it if it turns out to be wrong, or I take it as a significant um, article of my faith. That it, that it is a, something that I stick to in the face of what I recognize as evidence against my position. Or it becomes like a, a vacuous ritual that he, that he says that I just say to give myself comfort, that it, that it has a use value, if you like, to kind of put it into kind of like a more Wittgenstein-y sort of term. You know, it's kind of got a use meaning rather than a verification meaning and i'm on board with that i think that's true you can you can kind of look at all those things and wittgenstein's going to be kind of in with that idea of yeah sometimes people say these things because it's part of their way of life and how they do things and it has some function other than a descriptive one but then when you look at the sociology of it and what happens when you've got is is it really just a a conflict of two ways of life when two religions are at war with each other or is that based upon also two distinct sets of claims which they think are verifiable. And I think that while Wittgenstein's brilliant, there's that muddiness there around that bit that we need to kind of sort out.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ben. Sally, Sophie, any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, I
1: think the thing with Wittgenstein, I mean, I, I wouldn't claim to fully understand Wittgenstein ever, but how far does he draw us into these isolated ghettos of belief and and language, and how much communication can they be with them, you know, so you know, cannot the rugby player and the football player learn the rules of each other's game you know, so the, we have, the, it, it's a very interesting concept, do so we have to have religious language grounded in you know, verifiability and falsifiability or it's this kind of more vacuous way of life which shuts down, it shuts down debate it does shut down debate then, and it's interesting that we kind of keep coming back to Mitchell, because this is why I think he comes nicely at the end, almost after the After sort of flu and then hair, who has quite a bit approach because he's saying, well, the difference between my um, partisan and the blick is there's a grounding for it. So what happens is the partisan sits down with a stranger and there's a reason the blicks come from nowhere, whereas the, the, the partisan's faith is grounded. And yes, the evidence looks bad and that is acknowledged. And there is the potential for falsifiability, but the yeah you know, but what the the believer the partisan doesn't have to specify exactly when that will happen. I don't have to say oh, okay if x, y, z happens bang the belief is gone but there is still the potential for it, which makes this idea more of a reasonable faith so and but there, there is the faith you no know, and it's always going to transcend the evidence that's the point of faith it doesn't have to be divorced from reason so I think that's a really nice way I mean I, again Now, if you say to a religious believer, oh, yeah, that resurrection of Christ is just a picture in your mind, isn't it? Nope. (laughs) That's what I actually believe. And that's the reason for my way of life. That happened. So we can't impose a theory of language on believers. That would be a mistake. But equally, we shouldn't demand so much that they have to justify everything with hard, hard evidence. There's usually a grounding for people's religious belief, wherever that's come from. The statements they're making about God will be grounded. But of course, it's going to transcend the evidence. That's the point of it. And I think that's it. That's important to remember.
0: Yeah. And just to bring it back to where we started right uh, near the start when we were talking about, I don't know who it was. I think it was perhaps it was Sophie saying that there's this big tension because we're using everyday language. And then suddenly we've got to talk about and make sense of religious claims. They seem slightly different and yet they still seem part of language. And really, that's the kind of point where we've ended up here. Then we're exposing, all the way through, we're exposing all those issues about how different is it, how similar is it, can we criticise other people, can we just do just have to leave them alone, what's our treatment there? So, uh, I mean, I think something we said at the start, you might think, oh, religious language, you know, who cares about that? But actually thinking about religious language is a really interesting thing to think about when you just think about language and life in general, and about how we're approaching, you know, how we say about things about the world both everyday things and the things that we hold most dear. Listen, we better leave things there. That was really uh, great from all three of you. Uh, We should thank you all for giving up your time as well. So Sally, thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That was really fun. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Uh, And Sophie, thanks to you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Great. And
3: Ben, thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much for having me back again.
0: Great. And thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you will seek out other episodes in Philosophy. Get schooled.